0: everybody. This is Stephanie Rupert. Thank you for tuning in to the Meaning of Everything podcast, where we consider actually genius ideas. Today is episode number 25X, and I'm going to be discussing or exploring the question, why we believe what we believe. So before getting into why do we believe what we believe, of course, as ever, I have some quick announcements. First, I have a winner for our drawing. This week's winner is Iria Papadopoulos. I believe that's how you pronounce the name. Not too sure. Very, very, very happy to be able to send a copy of one of my favorite books to you. It's one of my favorite things to do for anybody else who wants a free book. All you have to do is take a screenshot of your review of this podcast while you write it on any podcasting platform and send it to tmoeverything at gmail.com and that's it. You'll be entered into the drawing forever. Okay. I want to get that done with quickly because there's a lot of really interesting stuff to talk about today. Why do we believe what we believe? What a massive, massive question. Now, we talked about this in this week's earlier episode with Connor Wood. He is a brilliant and absolutely brilliant scholar of religion and specifically different components of things that we have traditionally called religion, such as belief, the tendency to believe in gods, right? This is something that is, we see all over the world as we discussed in the last episode. And it is a subset of ideas about what we believe that is really, really important and really, really interesting right sort of learning wasn't that interesting anyway it was for me talking with connor about all those different ways that humans can be persuaded or different sorts of functionalities that we have in our brain that lead to a wide variety of kinds of beliefs such as in government such as in money such as in contracts such as in gods which is really interesting and of course this is all from a scientific perspective and If you don't love science, let's chat about it. I think it's very, very interesting. And of course, knowing why we are predisposed to believe these certain things doesn't mean that they're necessarily false, but it does mean that this is a scientific hypothesis that can account evolutionarily for why we might tend to believe in one thing or another or what have you. So that's all very interesting, and I'm so glad that I was able to bring Connor on to talk about it. I've known Connor for years and have always, always thought really, really highly of his work. But today I want to talk about, I want to flush out, I want to go a level even deeper and look at the basic functionality of our belief as a species as a whole, right? We tend... There are a lot of things that we tend to do that we tend to overestimate. For one thing, we tend to believe that we think our way to conclusions, right? We tend to think that we think our way to conclusions, that we can be objective about things, that reason and logic are the reasons we conclude anything, and of course anybody who disagrees with us is unreasonable or illogical. But I want to present to you a bit of a thought experiment that can demonstrate to us precisely just how much of a misconception that is. Okay, so go back a few hundred years to the time of David Hume, who was a Scottish philosopher during the Enlightenment, which was the time in Western history, again, a few hundred years ago, in the 1600s and 1700s, more or less, when people were exploring our ability to make sense of things. People were exploring the sciences, although it wasn't called science yet, and people were exploring reason and looking for ways to ground knowledge without God, looking for firm foundations to knowledge, for ways to declare what is true, to understand how we understand things. And again, this was all without the tools of science. And so there was a lot of debate about what you could know and what you couldn't know. David Hume is famous in philosophy for presenting to us the problem of induction. The problem of induction basically states that just because something has happened a bunch of times in the past doesn't mean that it's necessarily certain that it will happen in the future. You cannot conclude with 100% accuracy that something is going to happen in the future, even something that you are so, so sure, like the sun coming up tomorrow. It is a fallacy of inference to think To presume that something that has happened over and over and over again would simply happen again. And so what this has demonstrated to us is that our proof, our empirical proof of things, our ability to sort of say, well, because X, so Y, I've observed X, so Y, is actually fundamentally impossible to say is true. But, says Hume, just because this is a problem doesn't mean that we have to throw our inferences out the window. It doesn't mean we have to throw truth out the window. Hume says, this is true, this thing about us, but we have to go ahead and make inferences anyway. We have to presume that the sun is going to come up. We can hold open in our minds the possibility that it won't, but logically speaking, scientifically speaking, practically speaking, we may as well just go ahead and do it anyway. So this is This is all interesting. How is this relevant? Well, embedded in this argument for Hume is something that people actually don't pay attention to, not nearly enough attention anyway, in modern scholarship and our understanding of Hume's insights. Because what Hume was saying to us, embedded in this argument, is the fact that when you know something, you don't know it from a set of logical precepts. You might use logical precepts to arrive at this knowledge. Say that the sun is going to rise tomorrow. Our knowledge, what we know, is actually an experience. And Hume means this so profoundly that he puts experience in all caps in his book. Knowledge is actually an experience. In that way, knowledge is a Feeling. And this is why we might say, Oh, I feel when we're trying to account for things that we think. We might say, I think, to try to differentiate the two. But the reality is that knowledge and feeling cannot be separated, belief and feeling cannot be separated. And this accounts for how people can have entirely different logics. And still, both feel very, very logical and very, very convinced that they are correct. This is simply why because the experience of knowledge is not a fact, it is a feeling. And certainty, of course, is a feeling. Now, we can import this kind of insight into today's modern scientific discussion and cognitive science and neuroscience you know the field of <laughs> all the fields of studying the brain and how people think have changed very rapidly over the course of the last few decades but very interestingly we have tended to be biased towards thinking of ourselves as very cognitive very rational thinking computing beings as opposed to ones as opposed to ones that have feeling interlaced with our thoughts now there have been people historically who've studied feelings but they've been called psychologists And so the study of psychology, human psychology, and feelings on one hand, and the study of how we think on the other hand has been by and large separate. Since forever. Now, the roots of this kind of thinking go very far back. They go far back to Plato, they went through the Enlightenment. We have always tended to think of our thoughts, our thoughts, and our feelings as separate, as as quite separate. In fact, the first science of the brain, the first cognitive science, actually emerged after we invented computers or the first computing machines. And we began to think about the brain in this fashion. And so the initial traditional exploration of the brain in cognitive science was considered computationalism, and it is today called computationalism. It's often also called cognitivism sometimes. Computationalism the brain as a computer, processing data. It's sort of an inert machine. It takes input from the environment. It creates outputs. And it it is thought of as something that computes. And of course, there has been pushback to this and a couple decades after the advent of the field, there were a couple of thinkers, uh, Lakoff, I think I'm pronouncing that incorrectly, George Lakoff and Mark Johnson, Lakoff in particular was interested in the way in which our embodied experience sort of provides the container for our thoughts. And in some books called Metaphors We Live By and Philosophy in the Flesh, these two thinkers fleshed out a system in which they demonstrated that our thinking is very much conditioned by our experiences by embodied creatures. So much of our metaphor comes from embodiment, moving forward, moving back. Happiness is up, upbeat, up tempo, right? Feeling high, sadness is down, feeling low, feeling down in the dumps. All of these different ways in which we think are actually very embodied. But this, I was still quite limited. Emotion wasn't factored into that at all. It still was a part of the brain. And now thinking about the neuroscience literature in recent decades, we have often thought historically of the human brain as being something that was sort of built on top of what was once called the lizard brain, right? We had an animal brain and then the human brain developed on top of it. And this human brain, well, also that, sorry, that uh, includes the animal brain, the human brain, including the animal brain uh, would develop obviously into what we have today. But these parts were thought of as very separate and emotions and feelings were considered are often a part of this more lizard hindbrain. And the human part, the part that was added on later, is all of that that has to do with executive control and rational thought. But in recent years, there have, of course, been theorists who have significantly challenged this idea. And by recent years, I mean emerging slowly throughout the last couple of decades. And these thinkers have said, wait a, wait a minute. Wouldn't it make sense not for the emotions to provide some data to the intellect and the intellect to control the emotions, but wouldn't it actually make sense for these things to function together, right? For emotions and intellect or executive control, more precisely, for these two different pieces of the brain that we've often thought of as separate, wouldn't it make sense for them to once the neocortex, the parts that do executive control that grew on top, Wouldn't it make sense for these to have evolved in tandem with the emotional parts of the brain and to have deep interconnectedness? As it turns out, that is precisely the case. And so now we have this model of the brain where we understand it not as there being some inputs from the body and emotion that the rational human brain processes as a computer, but rather this incredibly complex dialectical relationship in which thoughts give rise to feelings and feelings give rise to thoughts. And they're all just kind of intermeshed with one another. And even when we're thinking, right? And even when we think that we're feeling pretty neutral, there was always a substratum of feelings going on. If we're satisfied with our thought or dissatisfied with our thought, for example, or if we feel like it might be right, or we feel like it might be wrong. This is all deeply important to understand if we want to really comprehend who we are as a species and how it is that we arrive at decisions, right? We are well aware if you Google biases, human biases, or you go to the Wikipedia page for biases, you'll hit a list of, I think it's 190 something biases and I talk about them at length in episode 8X. So we're aware that we are biased as a species, but what we pay less attention to is this deep interwoven nature of thought and feeling and this deeply embedded emotional matrix that we're all in. And so the question then of why do we believe what we believe is answerable by this emotional matrix and thoughts do matter and reasons matter because we do have the capacity to see arguments and follow arguments but those are never not attended to by the structure of our emotions and the texture of our emotions while we are weaving our way through these arguments. And so when we're born, you know, we're born into what affect theorists nowadays are calling life worlds. We're born into a life world, into value systems, into meaning systems. And we are, sensory creatures right who can experience pain who can experience violence who can experience neglect and we can also experience very positive things and I think we all understand these things right we understand that our emotions and our experiences impact us but what I'm trying to demonstrate here is that our thought is never fully objective and it is never removed from our feelings which have been increasingly right, built upon from the day we were born, from before the day we were born, from when we were in the womb, conditioned and shaped by these power structures, by the language we hear, by the nutrition that we consume, by the violence that we witness or do not witness, the safety we experience, the lack or, prepen- or abundance of respect, all of these different things have very powerful, if often very subtle, impacts on who we become and how we think what we think and how we think and then of course this brings us back to our discussion with eric Kuglansky in episode number 21 where we understand that we can be very easily persuaded by emotional argumentation and this can be conditioned by circumstances that we have been under that we have been exposed to as Infants and children and adults, and they can be exacerbated by our current circumstances based on time pressure or the amount of stress we're under, right? We are deeply embedded emotional creatures, and so we really need to let go of this illusion that we have that we are ever, ever separate from our feeling. And in that way, animal nature, right, of our feelings are part of this animal matrix that we evolved, which they are and so is thinking to a degree. But we are deeply feeling creatures as much as we are creatures that are constantly thinking. And so we can move forward and do our best to attempt to be rational, but most importantly do our best to try to be open-minded, to remember that we sometimes can become cognitively closed off, that we are actually probably always in some sense cognitively closing ourselves off as a response to uncertainty and the need to simply move forward with our life, right? So we can attempt to be rational and we can attempt to be open-minded. And that's literally the best we can do and communicate and try to understand where other people are coming from. Reason exists. It certainly does. We reason with one another and we have tools of attempting to see beyond our own perspectives and see beyond our own emotions to understand one another and come to a common ground. I think this is what reason is all about. But we need to understand how deeply embedded we are. If we want to understand why we believe anything, Literally anything that you believe. It is a feeling. So I will leave you with that thought. I would love to hear what you think about it. Do please let me know on the Insta or on Facebook at Stephanie Ruper. You can also always email me at tmoeverything at gmail.com. Drop some comments on YouTube. That's always fun. Uh, whatever, whatever blows your skirt up, or however kids are saying that these days. This has been episode number 25X. I have had such a pleasure talking with you. I will be back next week. Take care.